my dream is to be able to like shoot a, a film in Europe and in Poland and work with Polish filmmakers and some sort of a Canadian Polish co-production and only blind person knows how to explain the way to another blind person because when you can see you don't pay attention to small details like turn left or right these persians started throwing something and the poles panicked because after what been through you know here's more violence right well they were throwing pomegranates you know, everything I've read and everything I've heard was about the kindness of strangers. People should not forget that. Poland, uh, things that come to mind, not a whole lot, no. Probably not a whole lot. Uh, Polish sausages? No, I don't know anything about that country. Poland? Sausages. <laughs> Pierogies? Is that it? We hope it's not. That's what we're going to try to show you. Jazz. I'm Małgorzata Bonikowska. And I'm Tomek Kniat. Welcome to the 46th episode of Polcast. A few years ago, when caring for my elderly mother suffering from Alzheimer's disease, I participated in an amazing workshop organized by the Alzheimer's Society, where all of us caregivers were given a chance to feel like our loved ones that we cared for. We were almost literally put in their shoes. It was an unforgettable experience. Maybe this is why when I was in Warsaw two years ago and saw a place called the Invisible Exhibition in Aleje Jerozunimskie Street, I didn't think twice and went through the experience. And the experience was truly unique. You enter a maze of completely dark rooms and start your unique interactive journey into the invisible world of the blind where you can experience how it is to cope in everyday situations without the help of sight, only by the sense of hearing, smell, balance. Of course, you go there with a guide. All the nearly 20 guides there are blind or visually impaired. One of them is Monika Dubiel, whom I reached in Warsaw. Monika, are you completely blind? No, I'm not. I can see colors and I can see light. I mean, I have, um, it's called, I think, light, light sensation. So, you know, I can tell when it's day, when it's night. Sometimes it's nice, sometimes it's helpful. For example, when I go back home uh, at night, I can see street lamps. So I know that, uh, you know, I have to go this way or that way. And, and I can see colors when there is good light of big things like buildings, even my clothes, for example, when I have uh, like red dress, I can tell that it's red. But um, for example, if there's any pattern on it, I cannot see it because it's too small. And this has been going on since your high school? No, when I was a child, I, I got ill when I was three years old, four years old, something like that. And so when when I was in kindergarten, actually, and when it started, uh, I had a big visual problem, but I could see I had to wear very thick glasses and I was able to read and write. 
I, I, I needed uh, bigger characters in my books, but I was able to read something. But then when I was in secondary school, I couldn't see uh, anymore uh, in my, you know, in my book or in my notebook. So I had to start using Braille alphabet. And more or less at that time, I started to use a computer as well with synthetic speech. The reason why we're talking is that you're also, apart from all the amazing things that you do, you are, <laughs> yeah, you're just finishing your studies, you're thinking about your PhD and this and that and the other. I mean, you're, you're active all over. But you also are a guide in this incredible place, which is called the Invisible Exhibition in Warsaw. Yes, um, I am. Like, how long have you been doing this? Uh, one year. Mm-hmm. Why did you decide to do it? Actually, it was by accident, like most of things in my life, because more or less one year ago, I came back to Poland from US. Um, it was beginning of July, and I didn't have any good idea what to do. And then um, one friend of mine uh, called me and asked me, look, would you like to work in Invisible Exhibition? And uh, I knew some people working here, uh, including him, of course. And I knew something about this place. I, I visited uh, Invisible Exhibition like two years ago with my boyfriend at the time. And uh, so I, I knew more or less, you know, what it was about. And I thought, yeah, I think it's a good idea. It seemed to me that it would be really, really cool to to guide people in the darkness and to, to share with them my life experience. So I came in August for five-day training uh, when I had to learn how to cope with difficult situations, like, for example, group of very small children or, uh, you know, um, panic attack of one of my guests or something like that. Okay, so you became a guide. So you've, for a year, you've been guiding people in Polish or in English or both? Uh, both. both. And in Spanish and Italian and Russian. Oh, my God. So let's talk about the exhibition, first of all. I mean, I visited it and it was one of the most incredible experiences of my life because you actually show what it's like to be in a situation where you do not see. You do not see completely, right? I mean, you see at least the colors, but yeah. when you enter the exhibition, you enter those rooms, you are in the dark, totally in the dark. Tell us what they can experience there. We have six rooms. Each one is a um, representation of plays that you know from your daily life. Uh, there are different uh, places, different spaces, exactly indoor and outdoor places. And you have to use other senses because sight is turned off. So you use touch, you use hearing, most of all. Um, but then sometimes smell. For example, um, we have some things that you can distinguish but by smelling them. But before you, you actually enter the, the exhibit, like before you enter the, 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 the spaces, the, the places where you guide people through... I remember that you actually show people in the lobby of the exhibition all kinds of little things that you guys use in order to make your life easier, right? Can you give us an, a few examples? Um, so we have a few tables, and um, one, for example, is dedicated to entertainment. So we have board games like checkers. Uh, we have even Ruby Cube. Uh, another table is dedicated to Braille alphabet. 
so we shown how um, we show the idea, the general idea, how it is constructed. What are the letters, of course? How to write? We have Braille machine. We have uh, one more table, which is I think the most interesting because we have these small items uh, that we talked about. For example, we have calculator, thermometer uh, that speaks to us. And uh, we have very uh, clever, small uh, thing uh, which helps us to make a cup of tea mm -hmm. because we put it on top of the cup and uh, it has two needles. You put these needles inside the cup and when the, when the cup is getting full and the water touches these needles, they make sound. So you can hear that it's full. So we have as well a small item that helps um, washing socks together in pairs that you just stick them together and you put them to the to the washing machine uh, because you can imagine that for the blind person matching socks in pairs after the laundry might be uh, problematic because if right. you cannot see the colors so you have to always keep them in pairs. So that's, that's the beginning, and then you take people through the actual rooms, and I'm interested in their reactions. Sometimes they're really enthusiastic, sometimes uh, people are frightened about the darkness, sometimes they would like to explore everything, sometimes they want to go out immediately, sometimes they are too stressed to do it. So it really depends on the person. And um, on the beginning, I think they are more concentrated on, on, on themselves uh, to survive to find their way so they don't ask many questions but with uh, each next room they you know get used to the situation and of course they, they ask us a lot of questions especially at the last place which is dedicated to um, a little bit of rest we, we sit down there and can have little conversation and this is the time for questions and people ask us from really basic things like how you can cook or how you can iron your clothes or how you can clean up your home uh, for, for, for questions like do blind people go party or how do you, how do you buy your clothes or how, how you can assess attractiveness of a boy or girl or something like that if you can you know you cannot see if it's handsome or not. And who are the people that come to visit your exhibition? It's a very popular exhibition. It's like 400,000 people apparently since your inception, since you opened in 2011. Yeah. That's a lot of people. Who are they? During the scholar year, we have a lot of, lot of school groups. Children who come to Warsaw for like one day or two day trip, like school trip. Uh, they visit um, Villano, the royal castle, and then come here. From really small children, like eight, nine years old, through secondary school uh, till um, high school as well. We have adults, of course. Uh, sometimes we have uh, team building. So, you know, people from some company come here to, to integrate in the darkness. So it's a specific uh, thing because um, it is about visiting as well. But um, first of all, it's about integrate them a little bit and um, wake up their creativity or something like that. So we have to think about some challenges for the, okay, so now you have to find this or you have to find that or you have to do this or you have to do that. That's really interesting. Sometimes we have students, for example, students of um, 
faculties somehow related to to, to, to blind mm-hmm. people, for example, special education, uh, social work, or stuff like that. Uh, once, for example, I had a group uh, from Georgia. There were architects. And they came here to Poland for some exchange program about universal designing. They had some, you know, classes about how to design a public space to, to, to make it accessible for everybody. And as part of this course, they, they were supposed to come here. Do blind people come to visit your exhibition? Yeah, sometimes they usually come here to to show their work to their friends. So they come here like with their I don't know, a like girlfriend, boyfriend, uh, friend, parents. For the, for the blind person in in himself or in herself, it's not very interesting place because it's like daily life. So nothing nothing more. <laughs> But mm-hmm. it's interesting to to take someone here. Mm-hmm. And you know, share this experience together. It's exactly. it's funny because for the first time you can you can escape from this person and say, "Hey, come on! Why are you so slowly?" You can make jokes of them. What have you learned through this experience, Monica? I think I learned how to answer questions uh, because sometimes I have really difficult questions. And uh, I learned how to work with people, especially with kids, because I didn't have too much to do with kids before. Mm, I learned a lot about uh, life of blind people from my colleagues because before coming here, I didn't have um, a lot of contact with blind people because I went to regular school. I don't have any blind person in my family. So most of my friends are uh, people who can see. So I learned a lot here as well. Do you consider yourself visually impaired or blind? Uh, I consider myself blind because what I can see doesn't help me a lot to rely on my sight. It, it, it sometimes it helps me a little bit, but not a lot. For example, you know, to use computer or to use mobile phone, I have to use synthetic speech. People who uh, who consider themselves visually impaired can use it like in a regular way, just to with bigger characters. Now, when you say you've learned a lot from your colleagues who are also guides um, in the exhibition, what have you learned? Uh, how to manage my iPhone, for example. Mm-hmm. So, like, little <laughs> tips. Do this, do this, yeah, don't do that. Exactly. Uh-huh. They, they told me a lot of tricks because iPhone mm-hmm. is uh, very well adapted for blind people use. And it has a lot of very useful applications. So, they told me a lot about that. For example, oh, you know, there is this application for the navigation that you can use. And it's really mm-hmm. helpful. And about moving around in the city when I don't know how to get somewhere they, they can explain someone for example who knows very well uh, some train station that I have never been to only blind person knows how to explain the way to another blind person because when you can see you don't pay attention to small details like turn left or right doesn't matter because when you get there you will see if the stairs are on the left or on the right are there many things that people came up with um, in the recent years I mean apart from synthetic speech which is incredible of course but I'm talking about all kinds of other gadgets devices is this of something course. that That's happening all the time. People are coming up with new ideas to make your lives easier. 
more than gadgets, we can mm-hmm. talk about applications. For example, there is an application uh, for the cell phone uh, that you can, for example, take photo of something and it tells you what is on the photo. You are in front of some building and it will tell you that you are mm-hmm. in front of the building, not in front of the park or something. There is another application uh, to recognize the text. So you take, a fo- you, for example, you find some sheet of paper in your home. You don't know what is this. If it's a, I don't know, bill for electricity or maybe the letter from your mom or I don't know, whatever. So you just take a photo and then your phone reads what is written on this sheet of paper. In Polish? Yeah, of course. You can choose language. It can be Polish, English, Spanish. It's very useful because I I always had that problem that I was collecting tons of papers. And once per year when my mother came, I showed it to her and she had to, you know, check, okay, this is useful. This you can throw to the trash. This is this we need. This you have to say. So it was really it was a really big job for her as well. And now I can control it by myself. And what did you do in the States? And how long did you stay there and where? I went there for exchange, for academic exchange. Mm-hmm. It was uh, University of North Carolina, Greensboro. I stayed there for four months. Then I spent a few weeks in Chicago mm-hmm. visiting friends. And then I spent one month in Washington, yeah, yeah, Washington D.C., mm-hmm. where I did practice, like student practice in a Polish embassy. To learn more about the Invisible Exhibition, please visit our website at mypodcast.com. Smacznego! We're here talking about our love for eating Polish. My name is Peter. And my name is Laura. And we wrote two Heritage Polish cookbooks called Polish Classic Recipes and Polish Classic Desserts, where all the recipes have been handed down from previous generations. But updated for modern kitchens, so no more pinch of this or glass of that. Today we'd like to share with you some more Polish summer salads. Poles have loved raw vegetable salads ever since they were introduced by Italian nobility in the 14th and 15th centuries. Their bright colors enhance every plate and with their fresh crunch, vegetables pair really well with almost any main course for dinner or lunch. And best yet, they're a healthy way to improve your family's <clears throat> diet. Now the hot weather is here and the farmer's markets are in full swing, there's not much better than a fresh chilled salad on your plate. These classic Polish salads are light, refreshing, and they go well with just about anything on today's menu. And by the way... These salads lend themselves especially well to all those modern kitchen tools like the food processor or mandolin slicers. you got to watch the mandolin slicer because I've cut my finger off a couple of years ago and it took a long time to recover. So, the first salad is a very simple tomato cucumber salad. Slice up four fresh, ripe, succulent, juicy tomatoes, just like those red babies I found at the farmer's market this weekend. Peel and slice a medium cucumber, grab a long serving dish, and alternate the slices, slightly overlapping each other. Sprinkle with salt, just a bit of sugar, garnish with chopped green onions and fresh chopped dill. And here's a tip, just before serving, give your salad a light sprinkle 
with a good quality white vinegar, and you're good to go. Now here's one of Peter's favorites that combines lettuce, cucumber, and radishes. Wash two heads of lettuce, separate the leaves, and dry. You have a salad spinner? They work pretty well, and I love to crank that thing up to warp speed. Oh, stop it. Cut the lettuce leaves into bite-sized pieces and combine with eight or ten sliced radishes and the slices of a large cucumber. Take a cup of sour cream, season it with a bit of sugar, salt, and pour this sauce over the vegetables. But not so much that the veggies start swimming away. Sprinkle chopped dill over the top and serve right away. And oh, here's another tip. If you wait too long before serving, the cucumbers will start giving off liquid and the lettuce will wilt. So serve them pretty quick. Next, if you love the crispy tang of radishes as I do, grab a fresh bright red bunch, slice them thinly, here you could use your mandolin again if you dare, and mix with a cup of creamy cottage cheese. I like the large curd style. Season it with salt and garnish with fresh chopped scallions. Chill it down in the fridge for a while and then make your presentation bright and colorful by serving the salad on lettuce leaves. Or as a creamy spread on your favorite crusty bread, which is what my mom fed me as a kid in Hamilton, Ontario. We've got one more for you that's uniquely Polish, a bright, crunchy cabbage and pickle salad. You'll need some shredded cabbage, two medium dill pickles, coarsely shredded, some pickle juice, from the jar, salad oil, and a small sliced tomato. You'll need some shredded cabbage, two medium dill pickles coarsely shredded, some pickle juice right from the jar, salad oil, and a small sliced tomato. Combine the cabbage and the pickles, season with both salt and sugar, mix in the pickle juice, that sounds weird doesn't it, but mix in the pickle juice and oil, stir it all up and arrange on a pretty dish. Chill it down and garnish with tomato slices. Yum! These salads are unique and really simple to prepare. There are just so many delicious summer salads in Polish cuisine that it's hard to choose. The full recipes for these salads and information about our heritage cookbooks are on our website, www.polishclassiccooking.com. Just scroll down to the article posted on July 29th 2016. Smacznego! A lot of Poland's history is virtually unknown to others. Still too few people know about the fate of over a million Poles deported in cattle trains to Soviet Gulag, where they were forced to do slave work in inhumane conditions and where thousands of them perished. We did talk about it in some of our podcast interviews. But what do the Poles have to do with Iran, India, and Africa? When and how did they find themselves there? To unravel the mystery, we talked to Irene Tomaszewski from Montreal, whom podcast listeners know from our previous conversation about the Cosmopolitan Review online magazine. So there, there are stories that are not known, and there are stories that are known a little. This story is completely unknown, even to some Poles, or maybe many Poles. But before we get into the actual story, I want your story, Irene, because you're one of the people who have gone through this whole incredible route from the Arctic to the equator in less than two years. Yeah. 
I'm not going to be able to tell you much about the Arctic because I was born there. Other than being able to say I was born in captivity, it's not something I remember. Although I remember a great many conversations because we were a talkative family. The Soviet Union invaded Poland at the same, well, two weeks later after Germany did, took over their half of the country and imposed their occupation. And during that time, they deported hundreds of thousands of Polish people to various parts of what is collectively known as Siberia. Everybody always says Siberia. In fact, we were deported not to Siberia. It was northern Russia. Some people were actually deported to Kazakhstan and so on. My mother was six months pregnant at the time of the family's arrest. So the usual long train trip, three, three weeks in a cold sealed uh, freight train up there. And then this pregnant woman was expected to um, chop trees. Then I was born. And much to the surprise of everybody, I was born alive. She, before long, could not nurse me because she was starving and had no, no breast milk. And you know, they fed me what they could. They'd take that horrible black bread that they had in those camps, put it in water and squish it into my mouth. And the, the, the months went by, and this kid refused to die. So they dragged me around all over the place. After the June 1941 attack by Hitler on um, Stalin, the negotiations that followed with the Allies, Stalin had to release his Polish prisoners and started doing so, but they had to find their way out. That took them a while because from distant places, and nothing was provided for them to find their way out. And uh, my mother found her way out. She was not with my father anymore. He had been sent to a harsher penal camp. And uh, they didn't know where they were. But she managed to, uh, using rafts on rivers, trains when they were, when you could get on one, you know, anything from northern Russia to Kazakhstan and then through the various stands, Turkmenistan and it was finally Uzbekistan. And finally the, there, um, there was General Anders's army. And um, there was an evacuation of both the army and quite a few civilians, by no means all of them. I think about 50,000 civilians managed to get out before the Russians closed the door on that. So we got to Persia. And by that time, well, I was almost two, but I was still not walking or talking because I was this blob with a big stomach. I remember I heard my mother say, you know, being horrified when she saw children in Biafra uh, during that terrible war when there was so much starvation. And she once told me, that's what you looked like. In Tehran, my other sister, Wanda, had tuberculosis. So she was in a hospital, not expected to live. Helena had ear infections, which, you know, impaired her hearing for the rest of her life. But somehow we made it. And we went to India, not for long. That was a stopping point along the way, because the ultimate destination was East Africa, which was then under British control, which is why <clears throat> they were able to offer us a safe haven, because the British can be and have been very generous with other people's lands. So they did offer us these settlements in, in what was then British colonial Africa. And you came with your mother and your two sisters. Yeah, we all came together. Right. And most of the people who came were mothers, women with children and orphans. Is that right? Mothers with children and thousands of orphans. 
because don't forget, the, General Anders' army was then training in Iraq and Syria and in those places. So men of suitable age and physical condition, they all joined sure. the army. It must have been an incredible shock. You were so physically and mentally wounded and injured and, 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 and devastated by, by the experience in the Soviet Union. Children are resilient. Once they got healthier... You know, it really was a tremendous amount of excitement. There are a lot of memoirs, including collective memoirs. Arriving in India, I mean, this was like a, I mean, the culture, the colors of India, which to this day, everybody who goes to India says that the colors of India are something beyond anybody, any European's imagination. And the mix and elephants walking freely, all kinds of animals and and the trains they were on the windows were open to get air because they weren't air-conditioned trains but you might know, stop and the monkeys would jump in and you so, had food right finally you know and i should go back to iran for a minute because there there are some things about this story that mean a great deal to me and i think they should mean a great deal to a lot of poles these ships were arriving on the on the shores of the caspian sea in in persia Well, the local people, you know, people are coming and they go there. This is, these weren't the rich local people. They went there with the things to sell because, well, you know, people are arriving. You've got possibly a market, right? Of course, when they saw who was disembarking from these ships in rags and in, you know, skin and bones and sick and everything else, they realized they're not going to sell their produce to them. I mean, there are many stories, but the one to me that is the most striking, at one point, these Persians started throwing something toward, because they weren't right with them. And the Poles panicked because after what had been through, you know, here's more violence, right? Well, they were throwing pomegranates. You know, everything I've read and everything I've heard was about the kindness of strangers. People should not forget that. How long did you stay in Iran or Persia? Not more than a couple of months, and long enough for Wanda to recover enough to be able to travel because Iran was considered a, not a safe place. It was a den of intrigue. I mean, the Germans had spies there, the Russians had, the English, ah, everybody. They, nobody wanted to leave thousands of refugees. So a refugees. few months in, in, in Iran or Persia yeah. and then how long in India? Yeah, just enough to recover. And then we went on to India and we were only in India for a couple of months as well, waiting for a ship. How did they organize the actual recovery of these people? What did they do? Like that, that must have been a large-scale effort. Oh, it was a huge effort. First of all, the Polish government in exile, which was in London, they wanted to take care of these civilians. The children were the hope of the future. I mean, they knew what was going on in Poland, after all. Uh, they wanted these children to recover. They wanted everybody to recover. The Brits helped. I mean, they were allies, after all, Britain and, and Poland. So, And then the Red Cross. International Red Cross, American Red Cross, Polonia in the U.S. and Polonia in Canada. The American Polonia sent clothes. And there are loads of amusing stories about that, too. And my mother actually remembered this one time when they were opening up a crate from the U.S. And they opened and they pulled out these sequined dresses. <laughs> Somebody not quite understanding what refugees needed. However, that's not entirely true. Because, in fact... One of the things they did, besides setting up hospitals to make to help people recover physically, they also wanted people to recover emotionally. And for that, you need culture. And these funny clothes from the U.S., they served very well for making costumes for kids when they, as soon as they set up little theaters for them, little stage productions. 
nothing was wasted. And I have to say that, you know, several hundred people died. Some actually collapsed almost as soon as they landed on the shores. Halina Babinska, who, who lives in Montreal, she was 10, I believe, at the time, 10 or 12. Uh, she had two younger sisters with her. And they made it across the Caspian, but not with their brother. Their brother was missing. And her mother collapsed on the beach as they were walking to, you know, the tent hospital. And her mother collapsed and died at her feet. People just died because they couldn't recover. You know, their state of health was not bad, but, you know, medical treatment couldn't help. And some, yes, some uh, ate too much. Um, not not because they ate too much, but because their system just couldn't couldn't handle it after starvation. There was one orphanage set up in Iran called Isfahan. Another fabulous story that everybody should know about: a thousand orphans in Isfahan, which was which is very often considered the most beautiful city city in the world. They recall. The wonderful treatment they had. Of course, the, you know, the, their caregivers were Polish. The army sent teachers and women who looked after the children. But still, they had to live in a city of, of Iranians. And by and large, it was a lovely experience. The schools they set up were fantastic. The kids went on field trips to the museums, to the countryside. The older ones went to Persepolis. I mean, this, these kids, in a way, went to the most exclusive schools in the world. Can, Can you tell me how they got there from from the actual places in the Soviet Union from which they were, well, freed or expelled, you can say, right? There was nothing provided for them. So how did nothing. they get there? They got it in many different ways. So there's no one story for all of them uh, because they had to improvise. Sometimes if they were near a river, like uh, there were rafts, makeshift rafts. They made the raft by tying together logs and whatever they could. Oh, very dangerous. And they'd float down a river somewhere. They would get on trains, but the trains were overcrowded. The stations were a nightmare. And of course, food was always a problem. So they would take trains when they could. And they had to go east quite a bit. They couldn't go straight south because uh, the German armies were advancing. And the whole thing was you have to get away from the front. From the... So they had to go east, which is why my mother ended up you know, taking us to a Kazakhstan. Uh, but there were thousands of people all desperately looking for some mode of travel. Word got around, and they knew that there was a Polish army forming in the southern part of um, Russia, and they all wanted to get to that because that was their hope. But on the way, en route, people died. Uh, my sister, who was at that time eight, I think eight or nine, recalls waking up in a train station you know, thousands of people milling around, waiting, hoping a train will come to take them somewhere. And when she woke up in the morning, the person beside her did not wake up because the person beside her died. People who were walking along some road to get to some place when some member of the family dies. In some cases, it was the mother. And the children had to bury their own mother and leave her there and keep going on their own. Um, the oldest siblings grew up awfully fast as they became... The parents of the young. There's a fantastic book by Veronika Hort, which was her pen name. It was that famous cabaret singer in Poland. Ardanovna, 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 yes. Now she wrote a book about, because she accompanied these children in a different route. She didn't go across the Caspian. There were all there was also a huge convoy of trucks 
taking orphaned children across the mountains to Persia. Uh, but she describes heartbreaking things when uh, children would arrive at the orphanage and the 10-year-old was carrying the two-year-old on his back while the six-year-old was walking along. It's a, it's a drama of um, monumental proportions. It, it's really you know, quite the, quite the odyssey. By 42, those who could get out did get out in the spring of um, 42, and then came the next phases. But some went only to India and stayed there. There's a famous story of the Maharaja with a heart of gold. Hanka Ordanuvna was with the orphanage in Tashkent. When they got word that they, a transport of trucks would be sent to take them over the mountains, and these are incredibly dangerous. Tra- I mean, the, the roads were like serpentine roads going around the mountains with no no guardrails. I can tell you, and uh, and the drivers were, I think, for the most part Indian. So they took these children over the mountains. Their first stop was at an, a, a Persian orphanage called Meshed, uh, in in a city called Meshed. The Persian orphanage, they were children, the Polish children were greeted beautifully. There was a sort of a reception for them, the food, of course, and the, and the Persian kids put on a little little performance for them. And, you know, it was it was heartwarming. So in India, word was spreading that these kids were coming. They, ha- they had to go somewhere. They couldn't stay in Persia. The British viceroy knew about it. The Polish cons- consul general there knew about it. The... Um, you know, and as often happens, wealthy women like to do things for charity. So, you know, we're going to do something, we're going to save some money. And anyway, word got to this Maharaja, who has a very long name, um, which I can never recite from memory. He heard about it. She knew the kids would be take them a while to get there because they'd have to pause in, in Persia for a while. He sent a message to the Polish authorities. I will take 500. Well, that was lovely. <laughs> a couple of days later, they got another message from him. He said, on second thought, make it a thousand. Oh. Now, he, in the meantime, had to prepare for them. Balahari was on the western coast of India, a little farther south. And it was well on the coast, near the beach, was where his palace was. In fact, his summer palace was right near where he was going to set up this well, we'll call it a camp for now. It was more like a boarding school. He immediately had this place specially built for them. The dormitories were equipped with a cot, a little table beside the cot, a little box at the foot of the bed for their treasures, if they had any, and some clothing. Now, And then he had a school built because he knew kids would need a school. Although, actually, for the older kids, he turned his summer palace over for them to use as a school. The wonderful picture of the music students on the steps of that summer palace. And then he um, built a little theater because he knew that the culture was going to be important. So he had, they had a little theater, playing fields, of course, because sports would be important. It was close to the beach because he was sure that children would love to go to the beach. Now, I tell you, When I was reading about this man, I didn't know what to do with myself. In fact, I think I'm choking up even now, years later. This is is amazing. And when he greeted them, when they finally came, they got their little outfits, the khaki shorts, the shirts, and a pith helmet for their head, you know. You know, it's beyond belief. And this man just 
he greeted them with the words, I am Bapu, which means I'm your father. He really did not joke about this because in the end, when Poland was turned over to the Soviets at the end of the war, and these people didn't want to go back to a communist country, he let them stay. And and, and to keep them from being actually deported, he actually adopted them. This is a man who had met Paderewski at one time in Switzerland. So, you know, these connections mean a lot. Can you imagine, at some point, they get a visitor, and the visitor is wearing a sari, but she speaks Polish like a Pole, mm-hmm. because she was Polish. It was Wanda Dymowska, who had been given a um, Hindu name by no less than... Gandhi. Gandhi gave Vanda Demovska a Hindu name, Uma Devi. Vanda Demovska was from, you know, a sort of aristocratic family from Poland, uh, had t- taken a great interest in other religions. She was a theosophist. I mean, Vanda Demovska translated to and from Polish and Hindi. She was many things. And she came to visit them. And then after that, she did so much, especially for the older ones. She took them on excursions to show them more of India. She introduced some of them to Gandhi himself. When Vanda de Moska Umadevi um, introduced some of the girls to him, one, on one of the visits, he gave them a letter or, or a package to deliver to her. And the thing is, they did not realize at the time that they were actually delivering secret material plans between Gandhi and Umadevi, because both of them were in the conspiracy against the British authorities. I mean, it was Gandhi is known for peaceful resistance. There is now a Maharaja Square in Poland. It's in the Ohota district. And there is also a Maharaja School. Uh, the square is known as the Good Maharaja because the authorities felt that his name was too complicated and difficult. So they just called it the Good Good Maharaja Square. And the school has his full name. And the Indian ambassador has visited the school. And I think it's a lovely way to give these students a chance to be a little less parochial in their outlook. So there it is. The school exists and it's on, I believe, Bednarska Street. So both are in Warsaw. Both in Warsaw. So from there, some of them did go to Africa or they stayed in that camp that the Maharaja uh, offered? From there, some of them went to New Zealand, Mm -hmm. yet another uh, aspect of the story. Some went to Africa. So when did the transportation to Africa start and finish? It started in in 42, spring of 42, and it finished in in the fall. It took about six months. This Africa, India, later on New Zealand, and so on, these are stories of resilience, but also they're cultural stories. Because when you know what was done by their own people for them to, to recover, and that's where it really gets interesting later on in Africa. To learn more about Iranian India part of the story, please visit our website, mypodcast.com. In our next episode, we will continue this fascinating story to learn about Irene Tomaszewski's childhood and the lives of thousands of other Polish children in Africa.
In her fascinating story, Irene Tomaszewski mentioned Hanka Ordonówna, also known as Ordonka. She was a famous Polish singer, dancer, a star performer at Warsaw's leading cabaret of the interwar times, Kwiprokwo, and an actress who appeared successfully on stage and in film. During the war, she was arrested and sent to a labor camp in Uzbekistan, when she contracted tuberculosis. When Stalin allowed the formation of Polish army under General Władysław Anders in 1942, she became part of the epic exodus of Poles from the Soviet Union to the Middle East which Irene Tomaszewski was talking about. After the war, Ordonówna and her husband settled in Beirut. There, in the summer of 1950, far from her beloved city of Warsaw, she contracted typhus and died in 1950. Her hit song of the 1930s, Miłość Ci Love Forgives Everything, is popular also today. You will be able to hear the song at the end of this episode. He's the former head of research for the National Geographic Channel in Canada, and his TV experience includes work for Alliance Atlantis, CanWest, and Shaw Media on channels such as History Television, IFC, and Mystery. He founded the Creators Bureau, a Toronto-based multi-platform production company, which he runs with his wife, Ursula. But Filip Terlecki's other, or main, passion is making films. His most recent one, which he wrote and directed, Suffer, is the short story adaptation of Stephen King's Suffer the Little Children. His previous short film, The Master, had its world premiere at the 2014 Cannes Film Festival. Philip, first of all, congratulations. Congratulations on a nomination of your um, most recent film, Suffolk. Yeah, so uh, there's a film festival called the Women in Horror Film Festival. It's the first one, uh, and it's happening in Atlanta or just outside of Atlanta in the U.S., and they were kind enough to uh, nominate our film, Suffer, for a bunch of awards, including, um, you know, Best uh, Short Thriller, um, best music, best uh, performance by an actress in a leading role, and best director. Oh, that's a yeah. lot. When is the festival taking place? So it's happening uh, September 21st to the 24th. So are you going? Yes, I plan on going. Um, I'll go from the Thursday to the Saturday. Suffer. This is your second film, right? Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it's my second short, but I've done a bunch of, you know, kind of shorts kind of on my own and film schools, uh, which I kind of don't count. They were kind of practice films. And this is uh, my second uh, digital short. I wrote it and directed it and had a, um, you know, a a decent sized crew and and kind of professional actors. And so I kind of does a, a real short film. So The Master was made in 2014. So The Master was a kids movie that I did and it was kind of uh, an original story kind of inspired by a, a real event uh, but I wrote that uh, entirely from scratch and um, and it's a kids movie um, with a kind of very endearing heartwarming story to it. Suffer is a short story based on uh, Stephen King's Suffer the Little Children I adapted it, but it's not uh, a real adaptation. It's more sort of inspired by that story. It's almost like a accompanying piece 
to his uh, short story. You could read the short story, you could see our movie, and they're going to be different, but you can kind of see what um, what the inspirations are there. It's almost like one comes after the next. And why that? Why suffer the little children? Uh, Stephen King has this cool program. It's called the Dollar Baby Program, where you can option one of his short stories uh, for a dollar if he's not doing anything with it. And I really like Stephen King, and I really liked his characters. And this one in particular I liked because it kind of reminded me of something that Roman Polanski might do where it, you know, kind of deals with somebody's uh, mental anguish or mental breakdown. Um, so I really liked the character. I wrote uh, a script uh, that was kind of tr a true adaptation of Stephen King's uh, story, but then um, it just kind of the scope was too big. We couldn't do it given the financing, so we kind of I decided to change it around, and we um, we used that story as an inspiration to kind of um, put a different spin on the story. I wanted to do it because of the character, and and I thought um, it was an interesting kind of character to direct. And that's really quite interesting because in the other part of your job, you deal with um, very different kind of thing, right? Your creators uh, bureau is concerned mm -hmm. with doing videos and, and commercials, so. There, there is this other side of you. One is this commercial side, and one is this thing where you want to focus on characters. You're interested in depth and psychological things. How does that work? Well, I mean, the, the filmmaking is probably my, I mean, that's my passion. That's kind of what I, you know, dream of doing full time if I can. Um, the Creators Bureau uh, stuff that we do, <clears throat> so it's commercial work. It's branded content work for companies, um, and we have you know big clients like uh, Samsung and Tim Hortons and Absolute Vodka, and we do um, content for them that's meant for uh, YouTube and, and Facebook, but it's very much real stories based around real people, kind of like mini documentaries we call them usually. Most of the work is kind of like mini doc, so you know it could be a series of videos about cool people. Um, like DJs and, and uh, fashion designers done for uh, Absolute Vodka, for instance. Or we do a, a series of videos for Tim Hortons where little athletes interview big professional athletes. So that's different from the film stuff. The film stuff, I love writing. I love imagining worlds. I love kind of creating things. And when it comes to working on the set, working with actors and you know collaborating with all the different skilled, uh, talented um, people that work on a film. So that's really what gets me excited. And and I, you know, I hope to do more of that. I'm sure finding money, fi you know, funding is hard. Can a person like you with talent ideas and, and and people to work with? Can you find support for your projects? Well, I mean, you know, I think the, the biggest obstacle is always uh, the finances. Like, films aren't uh, inexpensive to make. And I think, I mean, there is an expensive ways to make a film. You could always kind of just shoot on an iPhone and get a couple of actors and kind of use whatever you have. And that's one way of doing it. And I should probably do more of that. Yeah. So, the, the you know, the money aside, then it's the logistics of you know, locations and getting the crew kind of, and I mean like, you know, you, you need the financing to be able to pay people if you want skilled kind of labor to work on your film, whether it's wardrobe designers or um, directors of photography, all these people kind of, you know, I mean, they're professionals, they work, they get, they get paid. So you need to be able to pay them. So, you know, when I say financing, it's not for me to kind of like 
keep the money it's for me to be able to afford to pay people to help me make the movie and pay for locations pay for costumes pay for you know for food for the actors and everybody usually kind of on short films how did these stories come to you i mean are you looking for something that would be of interest are you coming up with an idea or a problem that you want to tackle how does that work Well, for me, it's usually it starts with there's some sort of a spark, like something that kind of ignites an idea. And I think and I, if I think it's a it's a kind of if there's something there, like a nugget of, of, of something interesting, then I think then I'll work on it and, and see what I can do with it. But it needs to kind of I don't know, be based around a concept or some sort of an idea that it clicks with me. And if it clicks with me, then I'll kind of, you know, put in the time and see where it goes. Now, let's go back to, for a little while to the to the Creators Bureau, uh, your other part of work, where you work with your wife. I liked in the description that you have on your website that it's playful. Yeah, it's a, you know, we kind of uh, try to have fun and kind of make sure we're creative and enjoy what we're doing. And the way we did kind of describe it is Ursula. So if the company is called the Creators Bureau. Ursula would be the bureau and I would be the creator. <laughs> She's very good at marketing and publicity and can help come up with ideas that kind of will um, will engage uh, people and, and be interesting and uh, and she's very organized so she kind of focuses on that aspect of the company and I, I do more kind of creative development and uh, work with the agencies that we work with um, to kind of develop ideas and, and 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 produce them so you know oftentimes we might get a concept or a script and then it's a matter of turning that I, that script into Uh, into reality so you need to put a crew together and you need to find locations and and all that it's kind of like making you know a, a, a film mm -hmm. um, everything needs to be put together from scratch is it a very competitive market in commercials yeah it's pretty competitive but i find like with any industry you know once you kind of get your foot in the door and people like working with you and you're trusted and, and people think that you can do it and, and you've come through then they tend to come back and we've been fortunate enough to have you know a lot of repeat business and we work with the same clients and agencies and and uh, on all kinds of different projects we're you know we're, we're slated to go to cuba to film in havana uh, in october for a couple of days and That'll be um, that'll be exciting, and then we're shooting next week for um, uh, for um, rethink breast cancer um, to do uh, to help them make uh, some videos. So you know, it's all kind of it's it's always different. It's always exciting. Generally, when you look at that particular field of commercials, do you think that um, a lot has changed and things are happening that never happened before? Is there any trends you see? Do you like what you see? Yeah, I, I think, um, you know, what I think is great now for like young people that are coming up, I think it's a lot more viable to kind of be a filmmaker or a creative person and live off of creative things. Whereas before, um, when you look at commercials, it was only kind of big budget commercials. So, you know, when you have big budget commercials, that means um, the people that get them are trusted companies that have been around for a while. And it's really hard to break into that. Um, nowadays, because of, um, you know, branded content and social media, a lot of companies are doing, they're still doing their big budget commercials, but they're also doing content that's a lot uh, more inexpensive and they're doing more of it. Um, so smaller budgets mean that can take uh, risks uh, by bringing on different production companies and different creators um, and 
Um, that means more opportunities for young people. We actually started, you know, with a blog. We had a creative blog. We used to blog about cool things in the city. Get invited for uh, to attend different events in the city. And for the blog, we t- took pictures. Eventually, we started doing videos, and companies started asking us to do videos for them. And uh, eventually, you know, we just kept on getting, you know, one request after another request. And after a while, we said, well, you know, the blog isn't making us any money, but the videos might. So we started doing we started doing these uh, um, branded content videos for companies and then just it grew from there. And, and you're Polish. Both of you are Polish. And I remember the times when you were actually quite involved in various things that had to do with the Polish community. Are you still? Yeah, we used to be super involved. And I think ever since we had kids, now we've kind of have to streamline our, and really focus on, you know, I mean, there's only so many hours in a day now. Um, so now it's just family and work. You know, we miss it sometimes. We, we were so involved with it before. We did so so many things. You know, Szkoła of course, is in Poland or Young Professionals Networks, that kind of stuff. You know, we did all that. So now, you know, it's a different chapter. Um, but, you know, I mean, like my dream is to be able to, like, shoot a a film in Europe and and, and Poland and, and work with Polish filmmakers and some sort of a Canadian Polish co-production and I'm actually working on a script that maybe you know I'll be able to do that with but um, that would be the, the most amazing thing like if I could somehow bridge those two together and kind of do a Polish Canadian kind of you know professional co-production whether it's a film or somehow work on commercials and incorporate uh, Polish artists, uh, directors of photography or editors or graphic designers. You know, it's like a filmmaking community. It's like a small family in a way. So recently I, I met a couple of Polish um, filmmakers that uh, I've been keeping in touch with and, and hopefully we'll, you know, we'll get something going. Anyway, all the best for your Atlanta and I hope you win all these categories. Okay, thank you. All right. Thanks so much. To learn more about Filip Terlecki, please visit our website at mypodcast.com. Recently we talked about what shocks people coming from other countries to Poland. Now today we want to talk to you about How to piss off someone from Poland? How to piss off a Polish person in Poland or somewhere else? And I think it's easier than we think. For example, please don't suggest that we are Russian. So if you do, you piss somebody off, basically. Definitely, yes. You you know, I I, I agree that we look similar. I, I definitely agree that we have a very similar accent. But we are definitely not from Russia. Definitely not. Right. Well, it's a complicated history or relationship between Russia and Poland, right? Because of history and so on and so on. And also there's this element that I think it's like a little bit like Canada versus America, the United States, New Zealand and Australia. Russia is bigger and everyone is simply more interested in what happens in Russia. Sorry to say so, but that's the way it is, right? Well, maybe it's, it's better known, but, you know, it's just like we Canadians... We define our Canadians as we are not Americans. Or no, that's the most important thing about us in Canada. We are not Americans. That's right. So that's why we're not Russian. And of course, we like Russian people. We like Russian music. We like Russian literature and art and food sometimes as well. But that's a different story. Ballet. Ballet, that's right. Just to simplify it, we, we love everything Russian. We definitely love Russian people. Uh, we love to party together. Oh, yeah. 
we may be just not big fans of Russia as a country and, and, and the history, and we don't like to be, I don't know. Called Russians. Confused with them. That's right. <laughs> also, mind you, you have to remember, those of you who don't know, that from grade five to the end of university, every Polish young person had to study Russian. Right. It was a compulsory subject at school and we were not very happy about it, although silly because it was another foreign language. But we never thought about it in this way. Every time something is not of our own choice, we just don't like it as much. But uh, we like our food. That's right. And, and, and we don't like too much when somebody doesn't like it as much as we do. Oh, my God, don't we? So if you want to piss off somebody from Poland, tell them that food is terrible, Polish food is terrible, or even so-so, right? Yes, and, and I, I don't think we really care if you like it. Just don't tell us that you don't. That's right. Well, we know we're not really a gourmet food country, right? We're not, we're not France. We're not that sophisticated. But we have our good, simple, filling, comforting pork chops with potatoes and sauerkraut and dumplings and a lot of thick soup. So, hey. Bread, pierogies, bigos. And we talked about bigos. Oh, bigos. Yeah. We talked about bigos Absolutely. here. And do not tell us you don't like bigos, and, right? And we, even have, or and we even have Russian pierogi that probably have very little to do with, with Russian kitchen. We just call them that way. That's right. We call them pierogi ruskie, which has totally nothing to do, apparently, with Russian, uh, Russian uh, cuisine. But they're just filled with uh, cheese, biawiser, and potatoes. Uh, potatoes, as usual, right? <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. But anyway, po people like Polish food. And we can tell you that because in all Polish festivals in Toronto or Mississauga, there's always long lineups for Polish food. And Polish delis in Toronto are extremely popular as stores. Like, you don't see only Polish people uh, doing shopping there. Well, I was speaking with my customer earlier today. And when he learned or guessed that I'm, I'm from Poland, one of the first things he mentioned was good Polish food. So thank As you very they much. usually do. That's right. So if you go to Poland or if you speak to a Pole, don't forget that Polish food is the best. And also, don't forget that Chopin was Polish. Oh my God, do not ever. Okay, this is like key issue. If you want to piss off a Pole, you can show that you do not know the Polish heroes. Because we Poles gave so much to the world, probably more than anybody else, we think. And this is often not acknowledged. And we are just as sensitive about it as about Polish food. That's right. Or even maybe more. I don't know about that. But anyway, so Chopin was not French and neither was Marie Curie Skłodowska. Uh, Copernicus was not German. Oh, for sure. So before you talk to a Pole or if, before you go to Poland, for sure, it's a good idea to memorize the great Poles list and always throw a name or two into the conversation. They will love you forever. I remember speaking with somebody who suggested that Shenkevich was Russian. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. That's like two. Two of the most horrible things you can do. <laughs> we didn't talk about food then. <laughs> well, and there's one more thing you can do to piss off a Pole. And that is not to acknowledge and agree that Poles have suffered more than anybody in the world. More than any other nation. Well, at least that's, that's right. That, at least that's what Poles think. But, yeah. That's right. Well, it doesn't matter. We are the world. Poles are the world's number one victim. Well, and that's important to know, right? Again, we are not talking here about facts. We are talking about sensitivities. No. So that's right. Yeah. So every Pole would want to know, you to know that Poland suffered the most uh, from Always. Russians, from 
Oh, from well, from Germans, from Swedes, from who else? I don't know, European Union now. And if you know more, send us your suggestions. We'll be more than happy to share them with all our listeners. And I promise you, you won't piss us off. In the past episode of our podcast, we have covered a large number of stories and presented to you many amazing people. And it is our great pleasure to be able to update you on some of our interlocutors' new achievements, as well as some new developments in the stories we have featured. Remember Tomasz Kozłowski, the extreme sports fan and passionate skydiver whom we interviewed in episode 43? He organized this unique campaign called Project 48. On his 48th birthday, he performed 48 jumps, and each one of them was dedicated to someone in need, to help someone sick, living in poverty, facing challenges. Tomasz raised money for 48 different causes. We have just read on his Facebook his summary of the project. 108 people participated in the campaign. The day off required eight months of preparation. 1,000 liters of fuel were used. And the 50, because he eventually jumped 50 times, jumps, took seven hours. The fundraising has been completed and 200,000 zlotys, equivalent of 65,000 Canadian dollars, were raised. And what is equally important, dozens of people have been made to feel a lot better and a lot happier. I'm sure he feels better himself. Oh, he does. Big time. Ola Turkiewicz, creator of all podcast jingles and our guest in episode 7 and 21, is in Westerplatte, Poland, today. On the day we are releasing this episode. For the second time, Ola and her group of performers will be commemorating the anniversary of the beginning of the Second World War in this special concert taking place in Westerplatte, where the first shots of the World War II were fired against Polish arms. This year's concert is dedicated to young Poles and their role in the history of Poland. And Marek Probosz, whom we featured in episodes 44 and 45, the Hollywood story of success, actor, director, screenplay writer, author and university professor at UCLA, just got notified about being the winner of next year's prestigious Golden Owl Award in Vienna in the category of film. This is the so-called Polish Oscar, awarded to people with Polish roots from all over the world for outstanding achievements in various categories, film, theater, literature, media, etc. Marek is busy working in Poland now on a new TV series and also being a juror at an international film festival. Congratulations! And please let me remind our listeners that one of this year's recipients of Golden War Awards is you. Oh, thank you very much. Vienna was great, and I hope Marek has a wonderful time in Vienna next year. Hopefully he will not be just a Sega sewer. Exactly. (laughs) I'm sure he won't. (laughs) You've been listening to the 46th episode of Polcast. Podcast is created, recorded, and produced in Toronto by Małgorzata Bonikowska and Tomek Kniat.
For a lot of additional information, multimedia and links, please visit our website, mypolcast.com. And while you are there, please leave your comments and share with us your thoughts, reactions and ideas. If you know of any interesting person or story that we should cover on Polkas, please let us know. If you like what you heard, please share it with your friends. Thank you for listening to Polkas. As promised, we leave you with Hanka Rodonovna singing Miłość Ci Wszystko Wybaczy. Love forgives everything. Zamienić w śmierć Miłość tak pięknie tłumaczy Zgładę i klamstwo i gwęt Choćby się peklą w rozpaczy Że jest okrutna i zła Come on.